Alana Ulrich, in-house counsel at the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, we bring you a special episode of We the People, featuring Senators Jeff Flake and Chris Coons, in conversation with host Jeffrey Rosen, recorded live this week at the Atlantic Festival in Washington, D.C. The senators discuss their important role in the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, including their last-minute agreement to pause the nomination to allow for an FBI investigation of current allegations against Judge Kavanaugh. They also share their hopes and fears for the future of the Senate and the Supreme Court, and how political tribalism today threatens the legitimacy of these American institutions. Here's Bob Cohn, president of The Atlantic, to get us started. Thank you, Jeffrey, Alex, and Jeff. We'd like to conclude the day with Article One of the Constitution, the Congress. So we turn to two men at the center of our national conversation right now, both members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and together they are the architects of a process that is playing out right now in real time. Uh, they broke away from a leadership meeting to be with us today, and we're grateful to have them. Please welcome Jeff Flake, Republican of Arizona. And Chris, and Chris Coons, Democrat of Delaware, they're here with Jeff Rosen. Senators Coons and Flake, we invited you to this event about a month ago. Thank you so much for precipitating a constitutional crisis to justify our conversation this morning for precipitating it and avoiding it. And we are here to discuss gravely serious questions. And that is the future of the Senate as an institution, and that is the future of the Supreme Court as an institution, and how, as you so eloquently said, Senator Flake, to prevent the country from tearing itself apart at a time when the legitimacy of both of those institutions is under siege. I'm required, though, by my editor, Jeff Goldberg, Senator, just to ask the Newsy question, just to start us off. So this is from Goldberg. The question is, what is the state of play today, and what would it take uh, for the FBI investigation to reveal uh, to get you to consider voting against Brett Kavanaugh? Chris? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> It almost worked. Yeah, absolutely. Nice try. <laughs> um, the state of play today is uh, the investigation is ongoing. Um, the, they interviewed the first four that were named and have branched off from there, is my understanding, and are interviewing additional individuals, um, and as it should be. And I hope that they follow leads that come from those uh, first interviews. Uh, the what uh, the agreement that we struck, the compromise that we struck, that we'd have something that was limited by time, as Chris outlined it in the speech before we we went outside uh, to one week, and then we would limit the scope, uh, the scope being limited to current credible allegations. Uh, we didn't want to throw something open for allegations to come out like the you know, Rhode Island boat thing that was out and then retracted or or some of the more outlandish ones out there. Um, and uh, we, we checked with uh, DOJ, and they assured us that this was in, within what, you know, the time frame that they could do it. 
We both hope and have been pushing the White House to, to make sure it's a fulsome investigation and it's not uh, unduly limited. And uh, I, I hope they're doing it to find fact. We have not seen any of the reporting yet. Uh, we were told it might come back more in real time um, and that we might have some decisions to make in terms of where they go. My hope is that they, as they interview these individuals, then they'll immediately follow up on other leads that they might, they might have. So we don't know exactly where it is in terms of what it will take. Um, I, uh, I, I just hope that we find fact. And uh, I have an open mind, just like I had in the hearings. And we'll see what they come back with. I don't want to prejudge it. Thank you for that. Chris, uh, some Democrats have taken the position that regardless of what emerges from the investigation, the nominee's uh, temperament and conduct in the hearings is disqualifying. Could anything from the investigation make you vote in favor of Kavanaugh? Um, what I think is important, um, Jeffrey, about the moment we have here is that uh, as we ground towards the end of uh, Friday's committee deliberations, uh, they got sharper and hotter and more partisan and more personal. Um, to the point where uh, I think um, Senator Flake correctly perceived that um, the nine-hour hearing the day before, which had presented two um, compelling, uh, forceful uh, testimonies to completely opposite sets of facts and conclusions, um, was really having an impact um, in a lasting way on the credibility of the institution of the Senate. And if uh, the, the nomination was forced forward uh, with no more further investigation would have a lasting impact on the credibility of the court. Um, you asked a direct question, I'll give you a direct answer. Um, I had announced a conclusion, in my view, about Judge Kavanaugh based on his jurisprudence before we got to this point. Um, and, and that's not an opinion that is shared by um, many Republican colleagues, and I understand that. But what I think um, Senator Flake did that was exceptional and praiseworthy um, is to say, we have to come closer in terms of our understanding of facts, even though Democrats and Republicans will almost certainly continue to have very different opinions about Judge Kavanaugh from a policy perspective. Jeff's a real conservative. He would like not to speak for you, but my strong impression is he'd really like a conservative justice on the Supreme Court. I'm not. I really don't want someone with Judge Kavanaugh's views of presidential power or views of substantive due process or likely jurisprudence around um, privacy and around um, the most recent significant decisions by Justice Kennedy. Um, so I'm not going to change my views on um, Judge Kavanaugh's nomination based on that. But I think agreeing that we should have a week for um, a fulsome but time and scope prescribed FBI investigation we have to recognize raises the possibility of Kavanaugh being cleared of some or all of these allegations and the possibility of Dr. Ford being corroborated in some or all of these investigations and gives us a week to hear each other and to show the American people that we took a week to hear um, allegations that we've gotten from everywhere. I've had the most amazing couple of days, literally yesterday in the morning in Delaware where I woke up and at a a function late at night at a fire hall. I have had women I've known for years or decades come up to me and share with me the most riveting, painful, incredible accounts of sexual assault that they have never shared before. 
that they haven't shared with their husbands, with their sons, with their family, with their community. Um, and if nothing else was accomplished here, it was a, a strong signal by Senator Flake that we are willing to take a week to hear each other and to take seriously the idea of improving the facts that we have. It may not change the outcome whatsoever, but it's a really significant statement that the cooling saucer of the Senate can still, though cracked, perform its functions, and that the response Jeff got from you when we walked into the room suggests there is a hunger in the country for this to be not exceptional, but ordinary, for there to be reasonableness, even when we have such sharply different policy views. I genuinely like and admire Senator Flake. And it's... <laughs> even though we vote opposite ways all the time. <laughs> He'll come, He'll come around. <laughs> That's got to be typical, not exceptional. Um, let me so just say, let, uh, let me just uh, say how inspiring it is to hear uh, both of you describe your desire to do exactly what Madison hoped, which is to have senators listen to each other and have the country respect in a deliberative way. And thank you for giving us a week and saving the Senate. But Senator, you care so deeply about the institution. What happens next? He will be corroborated or exonerated, confirmed or not. The partisan passions will be strong and you are retiring. Uh, what will, do you believe, uh, will be the future of the Senate after you are gone and will it, its institutional legitimacy be preserved? Well, before I say that, let me just say, you know, you often hear politicians say, my friend over there, before they try to gouge your eyes out. <laughs> and, uh, but when I look at Chris, he truly is my friend. And we have traveled a lot. Uh, we both spent part of our misspent youth in, in Africa, he in Kenya, in East Africa, and me in Southern Africa. Um, and we've traveled to that region, that continent, a number of times. And we've been chased by elephants in Mozambique. We spent a very memorable four hours with one of the worst dictators, Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. Um, we've we've uh, been through a lot, and that the trust that you develop uh, working with each other on issues like that, wildlife preservation or Zadera or, or other issues, uh, that's, that's how compromises are possible. And there's less and less of that going on. Um, I, uh, memorably, a few years ago, wanted to prove that Republicans and Democrats could get along, so Martin Heinrich and I uh, marooned ourselves on a Pacific island for a week. Uh, Discovery Channel came along and filmed it, called it Rival Survival. Just <laughs> gave us a machete between us, and that was, uh, no, really, you can get it on Amazon for $2.99 still. But, <laughs> And I think it's still aired under between episodes of Naked and Afraid. <laughs> we were neither, maybe afraid, but uh, yes. but uh, but <laughs> but we got back and went on. David Letterman and Colbert ran a clip of us and said that Flake and Heinrich have proved once and for all Republicans and Democrats can get along if death is the only option. <laughs> so, <laughs> unfortunately, that's about where we are. Uh, but. But we, uh, and I do worry about the future of the Senate. It's always been uh, the body that the rules of the Senate bring you together. It's very seldom that one party has 60 votes. And so the, the, the filibuster rule requires, and that's what I like about the Senate. I served 12 years in the House. I love the People's House, but the Senate 
requires and pushes you together. Uh, but lately, uh, there have been so many things that simply have, have drug us apart, and I don't know how we get back. The incentives are all the other way. There are, there's no currency for bipartisanship. Uh, if you act bipartisan, it shows up in your opponent's campaign ads. And we've got to come to a point again where uh, the, the failure to, to compromise, the failure to reach across the aisle, particularly in the Senate, is punished at the ballot box rather than rewarded. And, and I don't know how we get there, but we, we need to. Chris, if you had to name the three top causes of this polarization, what would they be? What can do to fix it? And what are you going to do after Jeff Flake is gone? Miss him a lot. <laughs> um, so top causes. Um, we don't live together. So we travel back and forth to our home states every week. Um, for Delaware, I've traveled back and forth to my home state almost every day, so I'm an exception. But for most of the Senate, listening to Joe Biden, my predecessor, and asking him how he and John McCain, for example, built a working friendship over decades, everyone would come in on Monday and stay till Friday and often move their families here and often live here for long periods of time. So you'd get to know each other as parents at a baseball game or a lacrosse game rather than just as two-dimensional cutouts fighting each other on cable. First, second, cartoon cutouts fighting each other on cable. Um, the disaggregation of news and the, um, frankly, steady degeneration um, caused by Twitter and the smash mouth uh, po politics of the time. Third, how we raise money. Um, there, there's no longer a role really for parties. Um, there should be. It's not as strong as it used to be. Um, but you can raise a million dollars in your first day as an opponent um, who's won a primary by being more extreme than the other in 2010, as you may recall. Mike Castle, a well-respected centrist Republican, was my expected general election opponent. Christine O'Donnell beat him in a primary that had a tiny turnout, very low participation. She raised a million bucks the next day um, on one cable TV show. When you can fuel that, um, it accentuates the idea that you don't want to live in Washington, you don't want to be part of the swamp. You can appeal to um, tighter and tighter segments of more and more motivated potential voters or donors using social media and cable. And then what provides you the resources to win is less and less connected to having a broad base of support in your home state. And last, Travel. I got. There's three things that I think to answer the opposite. What are three things that I think have brought us together? Spending time in places where we aren't surrounded by, forgive me, the press, lobbyists, staff, other folks, working out in the gym, um, going to. I'm the co-chair of the weekly prayer breakfast that is broadly bipartisan, but is only senators and traveling overseas. I think Jeff and I, because we spent young. When we were young men, we spent periods of our lives seeing the United States from another part of the world. We understand the ways in which when our democracy is dysfunctional and when the world sees bickering and, and frankly, gridlock, there are competing models for how to organize society. And on the continent of Africa, they are ascendant. Um, democracy matters, and we have to act like we care about it and fight for it, because at the end of the day, there's other ways to organize societies. And as the founders saw, if you aren't careful about the mischiefs of faction, 
um, you will end up with a country that's no longer a model for democracy. Let me just Same add. question to you, please. There was, it was beautifully said, and, and what do you think are the causes of this polarization, and what would you do? I, yeah. He hit it. Um, you know, not, not traveling. I mean, when I got here to Congress uh, in the House, um, I read the book by Mo Udall, The Job of a Congressman. He felt his desire to you know, talk about what it was like in the 60s. And I remember reading that, he said, we have in our MRA, or the office budget account, enough money to travel home three times a year. Travel back to Arizona three times a year. The rest of the time they were here. Their kids went to school together, they, they associated, and it was just a different environment. I'm not suggesting we'll ever go back to that period, but that's, that's part of the issue now. But I would just add to what Chris says, it's not just the friendships that, uh, that come, it's just common decency. And we saw a, a great example of it uh, a few months ago. It was a vote in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for Mike Pompeo. It was a tight vote, and, uh, and it, was, uh, it was mostly partisan. Uh, Johnny Isaacson was home delivering a eulogy for his, his best friend. Johnny has some health issues, and tough for him to, you know, in the middle of the night, travel back for one vote and have to pull everybody in. And there used to be something in, in uh, Congress, in the Senate uh, in particular, called pairing. If one Democrat had to be gone for some reason, unavoidable, and a Republican, uh, a Republican friend would say, I'll vote the other way or I won't vote to not upset the balance, just as a measure of courtesy. Uh, if, if it wasn't something that would change a, a huge outcome, uh, but just as, uh, as something courteous. And uh, Johnny called, uh, called Chris and asked if he would do that. And, and Chris did. And it was the first example of that I've seen in years and years and years. And it, it, uh, it moved Bob Corker to tears, our chairman, because it's just so infrequent. And, and that's, uh, you know, it's not as much friendships developed or whatever else, but it's just common decency that, uh, that you just, these days, it's, it's punished. I, I remember well when um, Tim Kaine was uh, picked to be Hillary Clinton's running mate. Uh, Tim and I were elected together. We don't agree much, but we work together on a number of things like an AUMF and whatnot. But we disagree a lot. But... He's a decent, caring, smart senator. And uh, just as kind of a playful jab, I tweeted out, now I have to count the ways I hate Tim Kaine. <laughs> but I'm drawing a blank. He's a good man and a good friend. Congratulations. There was immediately unhinged fury from <laughs> tweets and emails and texts from my side of the aisle. Uh, saying, you know, how can you do that? And I was even at a Republican event, I kid you not, the next day or two days later in Arizona, and somebody came up to me and he said, what's wrong with you? If you can't say anything bad, don't... And he stopped. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was like he, he was reversing the advice he got from his mother, I'm sure, every day of his life. But that's just, that is the result of a shattered politics. And it's where we are. And uh, it, it's going to be tough to reverse because the incentives all push us that way. Chris, is this inspiring moment we're having like the false P3 
piece in the weeks after Sarajevo. Is this the last time that we'll see two senators dis discussing the institution? And if Kavanaugh is confirmed, will there be so much partisan bitterness, despite this welcome respite, that the Senate will never recover and Jeff Flake is retiring? And will you ever be able to have these moments of bipartisan comedy again? And what will the consequences be for the country if the Senate explodes in this way? Look, my, my wife and I sat down and had a heartfelt conversation. Um, I'm not up this cycle, but you know I'm up for re-election in two more years. Uh, and we had a conversation last week, and I'll just be blunt. Um, is this really worth our time? And I don't mean that in a, I mean, it's an incredible honor to serve in the Senate of the United States, but I am enormously frustrated at how little progress we are making tackling the huge issues right in front of us that affect average Americans and that affect our place in the world. Um, and I'm facing a, a Senate without Senator Flake, without Jeff, without Senator McCain, who was a great partner on foreign policy and security issues, without Bob Corker, who was my most prolific legislative partner on foreign relations. Um, these are three folks I've worked very hard to build good relationships with and who've been just tremendous partners. Um, and I said to my wife, I, I don't know if this is a good investment, um, but I know this. If the Senate doesn't work, our Constitution, our Republic, our nation doesn't work. I cannot abandon this post. If the people of Delaware will have me, I'll do it again. And I want to tell you... But my senior senator faced um, a significant primary challenge from the left in a way I haven't seen in my state in a long time. And the politics of my party are beginning to resemble the politics of the other party in ways that concern me. Um, so two encouraging stories, if I can. Um, Jeff and I went to Senator McCain's funeral um, together in Phoenix. Um, and when I got back, um, I made a point of going up um, to several um, relatively new senators who I overlap with on a committee, an area of interest, an area of background, but where we don't really know each other that well. And I said bluntly, um, I want to come get to know you. I want to come to your state. I want to come to your home. I welcome you to mine. I'd like to go to worship together. I'd like to give a speech together. I'd like to find a way to legislate together. Because if there aren't people I can work with, there is really no point in my being here. First. Second, the very kind anecdote that Jeff shared about my doing some very small thing to accommodate my good friend Johnny Isaacson, which should be typical, not exceptional, was occasioned by, and this is meant to be an encouraging story, um, the day my father died, um, uh, February uh, last year. Um, I was here in Washington and I got the news in the middle of the night. And I went to the floor and I looked about as miserable as I think I've ever looked. Um, and a senator who I know through prayer breakfast, a very conservative, relatively new senator from South Dakota, Mike Rounds, came across the floor, gave me a hug, looked me in the eye and said, whatever additional votes there are today, Chris, I will pair with you so that you can go be with your family. That touched me deeply. He is going to continue as a senator. Um, Jeff has done amazing work on immigration and has really taken hard chances to accomplish immigration reform. Mike is someone who I hope to legislate with on a range of areas. He was part of that Common Sense Caucus trying to get to a solution on dreamers and border security. 
There are folks I am hopeful I can work with. I doubt I will ever get chased by elephants in Mozambique with them. You'd think those elephants would have a little professional courtesy. <laughs> no. Um, but I, you know, in answer to your question, um, Jeff, I, I just wanted to say that, you know, our, it's up to you. It's up to the citizens of this country to recognize that if you support and advocate for and um, fund candidates who are unyielding and personally vicious, that's the politics we'll get. This is a democracy. My father served in the 1st Infantry for a reason. My brother in the 2nd Armored for a reason. They weren't there because it was expected and a hobby and a great way to build their resumes. They were there because generations of Americans have stood up for democracy and continue to do so today in hard places around the world. And if we don't feel like we mean it and we're not committed to it, then there are competing models for the world that would be happy to take our place on the world stage and in history. And I am determined that will not happen. Senator, you gave a very inspiring speech uh, for your determination to unite the country rather than tear it apart. Once you have left the Senate, what will you do to advance that crucially important mission for the future of our republic? I know you're asked if you'll run for president, and uh, I'll ask you that, but uh, in addition, what will you do to shore up the institution of the Senate and to heal this wounded country for the future of America? Well, um, I'm not leaving the Senate because it's, uh, you know, I'm tired of this institution or pox on all your houses. This is, it's a wonderful institution with wonderful people. Um, and uh, we, we've got to find a way to get together. So I, I, I simply couldn't uh, run the kind of campaign I felt I needed to run um, in this environment and succeed. Uh, that's the bottom line. Uh, but, uh, but I will stay involved, certainly. Um, I don't know at what level or in what way, um, but this is important. If I mean, the Senate uh, as an institution has to be there. It's a bulwark, particularly when we're talking about foreign policy, as Chris is. The Senate has always been, you know, with the six-year terms, the, the body, you know, with roles that the House doesn't have in terms of advice and consent on ambassador nominees and uh, the president's cabinet and, and the court, but the ability with a longer term to see beyond the, the hill and to develop relationships. Uh, you saw Senator McCain, the relationships he built around the world, and much of Senator McCain's final year in the Senate were spent reassuring allies that we are still their allies. Uh, that's important, and uh, whatever role I can play outside of this body, um, I'll play, uh, because it's, it's, it's vital, it's important. Uh, this, the Senate, as an institution, needs to return to its uh, former glory, I guess it put it that way, as the most deliberative body in the world, and it would be tough to make the case that it is right now. So um, I, I, will, I will play a role, I, I will stay involved.
Let's talk about the institutional legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Uh, if Justice, Judge Kavanaugh is confirmed, Chris, uh, there will be some Democrats who will refuse to accept his legitimacy because of his statements in the hearings. And we face the prospects of five to four <laughs> decisions of Republicans against Democrats in ways that could fundamentally undermine faith in the rule of law. Much will turn on Chief Justice John Roberts in an effort to avoid this. Tell us what you think Roberts must do, should do, in order to preserve the legitimacy of the court. Are you concerned about its legitimacy? And what would be the consequences of citizens losing faith in the nonpartisan legitimacy of the rule of law? Partly why this moment <clears throat> is so powerful and so fraught uh, is that we have asked the Supreme Court um, to be the arbiter, the deciding point for some of our most personal, passionate, powerful issues as a country. So in the arc of our lifetimes, you know, from racial integration to gun ownership, from marriage equality um, to now sexual harassment, uh, issues have been put onto the court um, that cannot be easily resolved in legislative processes and that have taken a constitutional hue but in some ways define our sense of ourselves and our scope and our role as citizens. How much can we contribute and to whom, Citizens United? Can the government surveil our most private communications? Um, how do we treat those who are captured in the course of combat? What, I mean, you know, the Supreme Court is the place that we look to in the last 60, 70 years to make these values decisions for the country. We've been able to have it play that role and not tear the country apart, partly because of this legitimacy, um, which is intensely fragile. Um, the point of the robes is to make them all sort of look more similar. Um, they don't have an army, as I think President Jackson memorably pointed out. Um, their force is in their credibility as independent arbiters of the Constitution. It is gravely at risk. The way we've conducted ourselves as senators, the way we talk to each other, the way we describe these issues, and the ways in which Judge Kavanaugh's character and credibility um, have been challenged and put on trial, and ways in which he spoke to us as a committee that I thought were overly partisan. All of this is a steamy jambalaya that goes right at the credibility of the court. Um, Chief Justice Roberts, I believe, is an institutionalist who understands um, how fragile the credibility of the court is. And you know, my hope is that we will conduct ourselves, um, even though it is inevitable there will be deep bitterness and anger and frustration at the outcome of this nomination, no matter how it ends, um, is that we will reduce the frequency with which we describe judges as wearing blue and red jerseys. In casual conversation, we now say so-and-so, comma, an Obama judge, so-and-so, comma, a Bush judge, so-and-so, comma, a Trump judge, as if that tells you exactly what they will decide. There are two new federal judges in Delaware where I worked well and professionally and easily with Don McGahn. They are Trump nominees. Senator Carper and I returned blue slips. They were confirmed nearly unanimously by the court, excuse me, by the Senate, and I think will serve admirably and long on our court. Do I think it is fair to them to call them Trump judges with the opprobrium that that brings in my party 
or to have the other party call them Trump judges with an expectation that that tells you the arc of their judicial service? No. And we've allowed that approach. We do wear red and blue jerseys. We are elected as members of parties and as partisans. We work hard to respect each other and know each other across that. But our judiciary has now been profoundly affected by the way we behave and speak. I think we are really at risk of losing that. Um, and so, you know, Jeff spoke early on in this exchange about the ways the Senate is different from the House. Changing the rules on confirmation of judges, something Democrats did first and then Republicans followed our lead, not having a 60-vote threshold, long periods of obstruction, holding certain seats open, refusing to confirm qualified nominees of the other party. I mean, part of Lindsey Graham's white-hot anger was because he voted for Sotomayor and for Kagan and cannot believe it is legitimate for someone like me to not be voting for a Judge Gorsuch, given his credentials. So I'm just citing an example that Lindsey and I had a conversation about. Um, so you know, there's a lot of he said, she said, back and forth, dislike, distrust between senators on this. If we have a court that begins to behave in a way you really can predict exactly how they will decide for the rest of their careers based on who nominated them, heaven help us, because the court cannot become as partisan and divided as the Congress and as the country. That's Senator, I'll just ask, what are your concerns about the future legitimacy of the court? What can Chief Justice Roberts do? And if Judge Kavanaugh is confirmed, some Democrats are talking about impeaching him in the House or packing the size of the Supreme Court, increasing it to 13 justices, as was done in 1800 and during the Civil War. What would you say to those Democrats about the effect of that on the future legitimacy of the rule of law? Well, stuff, I mean, that was just, Chris just gave a tutorial on, on what, and don't expect me to weave in steamy jambalaya um, <laughs> into any political discussion. It's it incredible. But, uh, but uh, I, when I walked into that room um, on Friday and saw the food fight that was going on uh, between our parties, just split on the dais, uh, Democrats threatening to walk out and not even vote in the final vote, um, just going back and forth, just this vitriol. Um, that's when, when uh, I sat there and then it came to Chris and Chris gave a very sober, rational um, speech about you know how we could move forward. And I thought that's what we've got to do because uh, the the Supreme Court is still the last bastion of <laughs> the last you know institution that most Americans have faith in. And as as uh, Chris mentioned. Uh, that's how it has worked for us to cede so much authority <laughs> and give so much power to the Supreme Court because people still have faith. If that faith is gone, then heaven help us. And so it is a concern. I was, I was very troubled by the, the tone uh, of, the, uh, of the remarks. Uh, the initial uh, defense that uh, that Judge uh, um, Kavanaugh gave uh, w was something like I, I told my wife, I hope that I would sound that indignant if I were, uh, if I felt that I was unjustly, you know, maligned. But then it went on and the interaction with the members 
was sharp and partisan, and that concerns me. And I tell myself, you give a little leeway because of what he's been through. But on the other hand, we can't have this on the court. We, we simply can't. And, uh, you know, it, it talk of impeachment or stacking the court, it's just, it's going the wrong direction. And, uh, I mean, this dysfunction has many fathers. We can go back to, you know, statements made in the 1980s with Bork or Clarence Thomas hearings or uh, you name it, you can find a villain uh, anywhere back there. The truth is both parties have engaged in it and, and have made the situation worse. And uh, we, we simply have to uh, elevate people to leadership positions and elect people who see it differently and understand the value and, uh, and purpose of the Supreme, Supreme Court. But, um, I do worry this, this red and blue jerseys uh, um, referring to be each other or these justices by who nominated them. Uh, it just, uh, it can't go on. As Lincoln said, I'm loath to close, but I can't, if you, if, I must ask you each for very short final thoughts. Lincoln in 1838, as we talked about earlier, warned about mobocratic government and feared that when citizens lose their allegiance to the rule of law, then liberty and the republic will falter. Chris, uh, what is at stake in this moment when the legitimacy of the Senate and the Supreme Court are under siege? And what do you want to tell your fellow citizens about what they can do about it? Um, I want to tell my fellow citizens first that Jeff Flake is um, an earnest, decent, thoughtful, a kind man, a good husband and father, and someone who deeply respects our democracy and the rule of law. And I hold that opinion fiercely about him despite our being from different parties, different states, different backgrounds, and different frames of reference, and despite our voting records being so sharply divergent. And if citizens can't hear and respect and recognize ways in which senators, presidents, members of the House can interact with each other in a more respectful and decent and thorough way, then I'm gravely concerned about the future of the rule of law, respect for core institutions of our society, and the ways in which the rest of the world sees us. We are an exceptional experiment in human history. Rarely, if ever, has a continental power assembled itself to be governed by its own people in an act of original creation that was exceptional but profoundly flawed and then gradually, diligently, over the decades, expanded the scope of justice, expanded the definition of citizenship, expanded the access to opportunity in ways that gradually made true, or more true, its opening promises. We are an exceptional nation, and we are at risk of losing it all through a populist mob mentality where no one can win because everyone must lose. It's up to you folks, and I just have eternal gratitude to my friend Jeff for making us take one week and look at each other and hear each other and respect each other. Senator, the last word very appropriately is to you, your thoughts and concerns about the future of the Republic and the rule of law and what is your message about what citizens can do about it? I feel like reaching over and just dropping Chris's mic. <laughs> that, that, 
<laughs> I can't, can't add to that. This guy is uh, incredible. And, uh, and the, the thing that I will miss uh, most about the Senate is relationships like this and being able to work together with people who I view as, uh, as true statesmen in every sense of the word. And I, I, you know, this, this notion that we have to see each other differently, or we, we just one example, uh, I was on that baseball field uh, in June of 17. And uh, when the gunman opened fire, and I just remember running to the dugout and seeing the bullets pitch off the gravel in front of me. Um, after Steve Scalise went down and whatnot, but they, if there's a memory of that that stays in my mind, it's that turning and seeing that and just thinking, and it seemed like an eternity, why us? Why here? Um, how can someone look on a field at a bunch of middle-aged men playing baseball, trying to relive their youth, and see the enemy? And, and that's what uh, this type of politics is bred and we've just got to get beyond it where we where we look at each other across the aisle and not see the enemy uh, but to see uh, I mentioned last night it's it's as if <clears throat> it's as if you, you want to heal yourself to heal your own brain by taking out your heart uh, we are uh, different parties but we're part of the same organ, the same body, and, and you, 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 you've got to work to get together here. We rarely does a party, like I said, have 60 votes. It would be horrible if that came to be for an extended period of time. We've got to find a way to look at each other and trust each other again and uh, not question each other's motives. And if we can do that, then we can be worthy of this republic that we have. Ladies and gentlemen, for their service to the United States of America, please join me in thanking Senators Coons and Flake. This conversation was part of a three-part event entitled The Constitution in Crisis, presented live at the Atlantic Festival in DC on October 2nd. You can check out video of this conversation and the rest of the program at constitutioncenter.org forward slash debate on the past programs page. The program was presented in partnership with The Atlantic and generously sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. Special thanks to Atlantic Live and their on-site AV team for facilitating this recording. Please remember to rate and review our show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich.